curtains and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a a prince and a, a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they, went, uh, they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but sh- Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may come and And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zephora. She gave a son, and he called his, called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the word of the Lord. A.W. Tozer. How many have ever heard of the man A.W. Tozer? A.W. Tozer, if you kind of struck up in the devotional world, he is known for writing a lot of little kind of short devotionals. He's also a great theological mind. He wrote, uh, he's a Christian Missionary Alliance pastor way, way, way back in the day before most of us were born. He died in 63. But he, he wrote um, this quote. Let, let me see how we can, how you feel about this quote. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man, a woman, greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Do you understand what Tozer is trying to say here? He's talking about how God often makes people useful for kingdom purposes by by bringing them through deep waters, through difficult times, and, and even personal hardships. And right now, that should describe each and every person in this room. God has probably brought you through some period, some season of life where you are deeply pained, you are hurting, you are scarred, you are just absolutely at this point of brokenness. Maybe you're going through that today. Maybe you're doing a great job of kind of hiding it and putting on your Sunday facade. But all of these things are within God's sovereign plan. Tozer here is is referring to the way that God often prepares 
future leaders by trial or even by their own failures. In order for a person to be used by God, he or she often has to be deconstructed, kind of a a taken apart. Now, a lot of this kind of goes against what we've been raised, right? The best way to raise our children is in a super, you know, positive environment where we give them everything, everything. They they are just overly blessed. Every kind of opportunity, they have that opportunity. Every kind of resource, we make sure that they have every resource at their hands, every activity they want to sign up for, everything they want. You give it to them. That's the way that we build character and we build into their lives. But this, this very thing, It's kind of going against it, and it kind of makes us uncomfortable. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 12. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whosoever loses loves his life, loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Thinking even about when Jesus says to follow me, he often refers to it, take up your cross and follow me. We see in Jesus' life and his ministry and his leadership clearly, this all clearly kind of combined together. But we also hear it in the Apostle Paul's life where he he appealed to the Lord, just remove this thorn, whatever that thorn was, this, this thing that is just bothering me and constantly aggravating me. If any of you have had a, um, a splinter in your hand, you, you know the pain every time you're hand moves or your foot moves where that splinter is it is constantly aggravating and it it seems to get infected and becomes red and it's very painful and paul is just appealing lord if it is possible remove this thorn from me and god's answer to paul was very instructive he said in second corinthians 12 but he talking about god said to me my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness therefore paul said i will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of christ may rest upon me so do you see what's what's going on here when it comes to god's kingdom and how he god uses people brokenness precedes usefulness brokenness precedes usefulness before god can use a person that person must be broken it's it's not a sadistic kind of god who's saying you know i'm just gonna squish him but before this person can be used he or she must come to the end of trusting in self and agree with paul when paul says when i am weak That is when I am strong. The reason that God operates this way is because the the goal of everything in life, including everything we do in service to God, everything that we do in life, the way we 
conduct our relationships, the way we conduct our business, the way that we conduct our church life, everything that we do, the way that we mow a lawn, the way that we handle our finances, everything that we do is ultimately to the glory of God, so that God is glorified, so that God is made much of. That is our ultimate goal. Life, ministry, success, and redemption is all about Him. It's not about you. It's not about me. And we begin to see this very clearly in the New Testament, but we also see this focus beginning to have its dawn in the book of Exodus. This book, as we saw in the past two weeks, is not about Israel, and it's not about Moses. It is about God. The deliverance of Israel from Egypt, the Ten Plagues, the Ten Commandments, and God, God's eventual abiding with them in the tabernacle are not designed to make much of Israel. Rather, these redemptive acts of God are designed to say something powerful and glorious and amazing and huge about God. And Moses understood this very well. More than any other person in biblical history, Moses was very near, geographically, relationally, very near to the presence and the glory of God. So to make it, so it makes sense when, when Moses is telling the story of Israel's deliverance and his role as a leader of this movement, of this deliverance, when that he would record his own personal failings. You see, this book of Exodus was written not by some third party observing. Exodus was written by Moses. And Moses is very intentional under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to tell about his failures. And Moses shows us how brokenness preceded usefulness even in his own personal life. And last week we saw the way in, in which God moved in a surprising way with the saving with the saving of a baby who would eventually become a deliverer. And prior to that, we learned how absolute dark and hopeless the situation was for Israel in Egypt. And this week, we are going to see how Moses is broken before he is going to be useful for God. Brokenness precedes usefulness. Our text provides an instructive glimpse for us into the two of the three seasons of Moses' life. This fr these first two seasons move, move quite quickly, and it's the last season of his life that the rest of Exodus is laid out. In Acts 7, we find that Moses was 40 years old when he came to hear of his, uh, visit his brothers and the children of Israel. He was 40 years old when that happened. And then we find out, according to Acts chapter 40, it was another 40 years until God spoke to him at the burning bush. So Moses is 80 years old by the time he comes back to Egypt to say, let my people go. 80 years old. And from Deuteronomy 4, or 34, we learn that Moses is 120 years when he finally died. Nice how God kind of puts it into 40-year segments. So each season of his life and each season of your life is important because it tells us something about the character of Moses, the character of God, 
and God's plan to save his people. It's a fascinating story of, of a leader who would be very, very useful, very instrumental in the deliverance of, of Israel. But it's also a very important, fascinating story about a man who first must be broken. So let's look at these at the first two seasons and see what we can learn about Moses, about ourselves, and also about how this all relates to Jesus. First, season one. The first season of his life was, was commendable, but absolutely imperfect. Commendable, but absolutely imperfect. In, the, in verse 11, we see that much has transpired in, in, in verse 10, that Moses was given the name which meant he was drawn out of the water. As I said earlier, it was likely that uh, 40 years have elapsed between verses 10 and 11. A lot have happened in those, those times. Moses was raised in the household of Pharaoh. He was being educated. He was being trained. He was a prince. He was a judge. He had a lot of power, a lot of authority. In fact, um, in his schooling, he was taught that he had a special privilege. And everybody underneath the ruling class was basically donkeys. So there's us and there's them. And that's what he grew up knowing. He, he learned, he, he had the best resources, the best training, the best privileges. Everything was given to him. And during this time, he was raised by a royal family and he was just educated by the best teachers that Egypt had to offer. Acts 7, 22 says that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. All the wisdom. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. So he moved to the top of all the ladders. He was on the top rung. And Moses enjoyed a life of the highest privilege, the highest wealth, the highest education, and the highest comfort. He had grown up as an Egyptian. However, some point in his adult journey, Moses became burdened with the plight of his own people, the Israelites. If you read in verse, if you read it verse eleven too casually and too quickly, the text can feel like Moses accidentally discovered the oppression of the Israelites. But there is. There's more here, and there are more cues in this text as to what is really going on inside of Moses. Notice the following. We see the phrase, his people, literally his brothers, twice in verse 11. He went out to his own people and one of his people. Moses was identifying himself not as an Egyptian, but as an Israelite. The term went out is often used in the Old Testament to describe how God brought Israel out of Egypt. And this would be a familiar term for those who were hearing the story over and over again. The one who will lead Exodus is making an Exodus himself. And to look upon their burden just has a strong emotional overtone to it. It means to see with emotional distress. When he saw them, his heart was distressed. Moses shares God's heart for his people, and he sees what is happening to them. When's the last time you can 
say that I had just emotional distress because of what I saw before me. Your heart was breaking with God's heart about what was going on in this marriage, in this relationship, in this workplace, in this third world country, in this first world country, where your heart is just absolutely emotionally distressed by what you are seeing. You can identify in a broken kind of way of saying, Lord, fix this. And Moses was looking upon the burdens of his people and he was emotionally distressed. It's the writer of Hebrews who gives the greatest commentary of what is going on in Moses' heart. Listen to Hebrews 11. By faith, when he was growing up, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And for he was looking forward to the reward. See, the book of Hebrews identifies that at some point in Moses' life, Moses made a conscious choice to side with God's people, even if it meant a difficulty or hardship. He, he is listed as an example of someone val who valued God's kingdom, even at great personal cost. And I, I really wonder this morning, how many of us, if we were really honest about totally honest, safe place, if we would say, listen, if you could have all the wealth of the world, everything that the world has to offer, absolutely everything, the best relationships, the best house, the best resources, the best education, you name it. it. It was yours at your disposal. And God kind of put something heavy on your heart and you identified with these broken people who were being oppressed. Would you say, I will give up all, all of this, all of this to faithfully follow after what Christ has called me to do? How many of us would honestly say, yes, Lord, I'm willing to go? The thing is, with Moses, he was looking for a greater reward, more than what this world could ever offer. Therefore, it seemed that this visit to see the burdens of the Israelites was not just this isolated or unusual thing for Moses. He was likely growing increasingly, increasingly, and more increasingly uncomfortable with what was happening, was trying to determine what can be done to stop it. And Moses wanted to find a way to free his people. And so in verse 11, we learn that on one of Moses' tours to, to survey the scene, he saw an Egyptian taskmaster master beating, beating a fellow Israelite. And this beating was likely life-threatening because these slaves were disposable. We got more slaves. We've got a problem. It seems like every time that we do genocide and we do oppression, they seem to be growing. So you know what? These folks are absolutely disposable. And so Moses decided it was time for him to intervene. And in verse 12, we get a sense that Moses was concerned about who might even see this intervention. Did you see that? He looked this way and that. Does it sound like 
when you know maybe this is not the best thing that I should be doing, what's the first thing that you do? I even have an app on my iPhone about how to travel down the interstates because it helps me look this way and that for police cars. Right? Don't tell me you don't do that in your own way. We all kind of look this way and that way. And so to advocate or to physically rescue a slave from this kind of beating from Moses would have revealed his, where his true allegiance lies. For him to rescue a slave who is worth nothing, according to the Egyptian courts, worth nothing, and to rescue that person and to save their life at the cost of an Egyptian taskmaster would have showed whose side you are on. And Moses, who was likely very militarily trained, killed the Egyptian, saved the slave, hid the dead body of the Egyptian slave master in the sand. It was very obvious in the text that there was a tone of secrecy. And Moses' actions were dangerous. They were a threat. The book of Hebrews identifies that at some point his allegiance changed. His heart changed. And Moses acted. But in verse 13, we learn that Moses went again out the next day, didn't he? And perhaps this had become a pattern for him, a, a daily appraisal as to what's really going on with his people. And another situation it presented it himself, itself. But this time, it was two Hebrews, two Israelites fighting against each other. And there was one man who was definitely in the wrong this time. And Moses could see it from his own appraisal. And Moses broke up the fight between these two Israelites and scolded the first one, saying, why do you strike your companion? Can you hear the irony there? The man who the day before had killed in secrecy an Egyptian is now saying to his brother, why, why, why are you striking your companion? But it was a slave that echoed something deep in his heart. The slave who was scolded, kind of took umbrage, kind of offense to what Moses had to say, and he said, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Immediately, you, you can hear kind of the sarcasm in this man's voice. The slave called into question Moses' credibility as a judge and a prince. He's saying, who do you think you are? Who made you our leader? He was attacking Moses' self-determined role in delivering the people of Israel. What more, the slave was adding some scandal to the pushback. I know that you killed the Egyptian. I know what you did. Seriously? You're going to judge me? Seriously? And Moses' presumptuous action of killing the Egyptian slave master was known. And his good heart and his good motives produced actions that were disdained by the very people that he, decided, that he discerned God was calling to lead out. His good actions and his, his good heart were, were off. Acts chapter 7 says he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Doug Stewart, in his commentary, 
gives us some insight of what may have been happening here. Doug Stewart says, it is not difficult to imagine why Moses was disliked or why the news about his murderous act has spread so far and so fast. An Egyptian overseer was missing. An investigation was probably underway or soon to be. And there was, and there was every likelihood that the Hebrews would be blamed and severely punished for the overseer's murder. Such a situation would have become, become the talk of the community and would have easily surfaced someone's admission to say, I saw who did it. When Moses had tried to do what Moses had tried to do from his people's point of view backfired. He had taken matters into his own hands and his arrogance in doing so probably was going to get a lot of people in trouble. This is a pattern that will develop all throughout Moses' leadership and ministry. And we should take great comfort in that even Moses, who was elevated, he was listed in Hebrews 11 as one of the great heroes of the faith. We, a whole book, and we see Moses' life being played out. Moses' life and ministry and leadership was one that was always riddled with problems. Riddled with it. When Pharaoh refused to give the people straw for bricks, Moses was accused of making a stink in the sight of Pharaoh. When the army of Pharaoh was approaching the Red Sea in front of them, he was told by the people, we asked you to leave us alone. And when the people were hungry in Exodus 16, the people will say, you brought us out in this wilderness to kill us by starvation. You did it. This is one of the subplots of the, the book that Moses' leadership is continually questioned, challenged, and even rejected, and you'll see even by his own family. Israel's opposition to Moses began here, and now throughout the book of Exodus, Moses exhibits amazing, amazing meekness. In fact, in Numbers 12, verse 3, it says that Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Very meek. And when we think of meek, we think of somebody who's soft and gushy and not very strong. But meek is strength under control. He was the most meek person. And it's likely that he learned this lesson the hard way through failure and through rejection time and time and time again. Moses was now in trouble because of his killing was known, and it was just a matter of time before Pharaoh would find out. And verse 15 confirms this. Pharaoh took action, probably because he saw this was a big issue. A member of his own family, his own court, had sided with the Israelites. This is an issue of national security. There is going to be an uprising within your own household. It is time to kill this man. So Moses fled. Moses was commendable in his desires and his, his affections. Hear that. It is commendable. And it should, he should be praised for his, desi his desires and his, his affections, his, his desire to do good. But his actions led to some hard but foundational lessons, which lead to the second season of his life. 
broken, but not useless. In the first season of Moses' life, we see a man who is commendable, but not perfect. During the second season of, of his life, he is, he is broken, but not useless. It's important that you remember that the next season of Moses' life is 40 years. 40 years in the making. 40 years of being in the fire, being in the forge, being changed and being molded, being changed. 40 years. I'm 44. I'm four years over this season. So for 40 years, he was in Midian being changed and being worked. He, when he fled to e Egypt, he had, he had no desire, no intentions of moving back. He was a marked man. And our, our text tells us that he fled to Midian. The Midianites were descendants of Abraham through his wife, Keturah. And it's, it's interesting to note is that these Midianites, they were called Ishmaelites, were the very ones who probably brought Joseph into Egypt the first time. So throughout the Old Testament history, the Israelites always had conflicts with these Midianites, as in the story of Gideon. I love the story of Gideon. Check out the story of Gideon in Judges uh, 7 and 8. But this time, Moses found refuge in his distant family, in these relatives. The Midianites were known as domestic desert dwellers, and the text doesn't exactly specify where they were living. But if you look ahead to Exodus 3, you'll see what's coming. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Do you know another name for Mount Horeb? Mount Sinai. For 40 years... Moses lived in the desert and visited the mountain of God and learned some valuable lessons for his future leadership of the people of God, the people of Israel. And in verse 15, we learn that when Moses fled to Midian, he providentially came to a well where he was able to rest. And amid, during this, this, in this arid environment, wells were extremely important a place where a lot of activity was going on. In verse 18 or 16, we're introduced to the priest of Midian, Ruel. And we're also introduced to Jethro, and they're both priests of Midian. The name differences are related to a clan name versus a personal name. Same man, different titles. Okay? So don't think that there's two different priests and they married woman from... Same man, different titles. The text tells us that this priest had seven beautiful daughters. And they were driven away from the well because of the shepherds who were also there. But verse 17, did you notice? Again, what is Moses doing? Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flocks. Now, if you've ever seen the Ten Commandments, how many of you have ever seen the Ten Commandments? <sighs> Not the best cinematography. But you see there, Moses kind of goes ninja on, on these, 
these other shepherds. He just goes crazy. You know, he brings out the staff and he kind of does all this stuff, maybe going over the top. But these, these daughters of Ruel, Jethro's daughters, were very impressed because he saved them. But the story shows more than Moses' combat skills and his bravery. It demonstrates that Moses is concerned about alleviating suffering and oppression and unfair treatment. Moses' heart is still reflecting the heart of God, right? Even in a far-off land. And apparently Moses didn't succumb to the I'm never getting involved again kind of mentality. I got hurt bad there getting involved. I'm never going to do that again kind of mentality. Because what do you do? You are seeing him quickly again getting involved. Moses had a heart of compassion, even in difficult and disappointing circumstances. Moses went right back at it. Even in his exile, Moses is still able to do what is right. Can that be said of you? Is there room in your understanding of God and difficult circumstances to still be engaged in kingdom work? Is there enough room for you to understand God and his sovereignty and the difficult seasons of life that you might be going in to be able to say, you know what, I still, no matter what is going on, even though I don't understand it all, I am still called to be engaged in God's kingdom work. Can you serve and minister to people even when your life is disappointing, disappointing and painful? Or do you withdraw and say, someone else has got to do it because I took enough lick? From there, the story progresses really, really quick. Really quick. From there, you see that Moses meets the father of these seven daughters, and one of them, Zephora, became Moses' wife. That's not just an afternoon kind of activity, okay? A lot of time has passed in here, and we learn next that Moses and Zephora were blessed by the birth of a son, and the name is very significant. Just like Moses last week, his name means he was drawn out of the water. He was drawn here. His son's name is Gershom, and the meaning of his name is even supplied to us. Always take note of that. It means I have been a sojourner, a traveler in a foreign land. Here we get a sense of Moses' perspective on life. He viewed himself as, a, as an exile, as a, as a nomad, as a, as a wanderer. He had left everything in Egypt. And the name of his son reflects that. I am just a wanderer. I have no home. You remember the last time that we were given the name of a child with Moses in Exodus 2.10? Moses' name implies that deliverance is coming. God is going to surprise him with deliverance in an amazing, un unprecedented kind of way. And Gershom's name implies that there are a lot of hard days for Moses. But lest you think that all hope is lost and gone, the text ends with the entrance of God. 
The deliverer has been introduced. His failure has been highlighted. And he's been learning hard lessons in Midian. So you get this verse 23 and 25. The people are crying out to God. Crying out, groaning, crying for help, asking for rescue from the slavery. And Christ came up to God and God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people, and God knew. Notice that God heard, that God remembered, and God saw, and God knew. Exodus is very clear. God is going to deliver his people. Period. And Moses will be the instrument, but only after he is broken and rebuilt. Brokenness precedes usefulness. So there's a reason why Moses recorded part of this story of Israel's deliverance from from Egypt. There's valuable lessons for you and I to understand here. So I'm going to give you three lessons. One, self-sufficiency is incompatible. Incompatible with spiritual leadership. Moses needed to learn a lesson that we all need to learn. Self-sufficiency does not work with God. Doesn't work with God. How often do you find yourself saying, you know what, God is not quite working at my pace. He's not answering the way that I want him to in, in my timing. So you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm going to become self-sufficient. I'm going to handle it in the way that I see fit and what really works best for me and my situation and my family. So we're going to do it my way. And the essence, hear this, brothers and sisters, the essence of the gospel message is that human beings are helpless sinners in need of a savior. And the Bible constantly reminds us about this with statements such as, what do you have that you didn't receive? That's from 1 Corinthians 4. And then he says, what, does, uh, what becomes of your boasting? It is excluded. Okay, so even what you think you're accomplished, accomplishing and what you're doing, even that is going to be excluded. God's going, seriously, that is nothing. Receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior means that you come to an end of your own ability and you throw yourself upon the mercy and work of Jesus Christ. Self-sufficiency and salvation do not work together. The problem with self-sufficiency is that it doesn't stop with conversion. It extends way into how Christians are to live their entire life life. Paul cites the example of Jesus Christ in in Philippians chapter 2. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of man, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Humility, dependency, and trust in God are requirements for spiritual leadership. Humility, dependency, 
and trust in God are requirements for spiritual leadership. Not just because they work. It's not the next best leadership kind of thing. But because they are required because who God is. An interesting parallel drawn between Moses' actions and the testing of Jesus in the wilderness. What was the primary temptation offered to Jesus in the, in the wilderness? It was for him to do all things in his own power to meet his own needs, to prove who he was, and to achieve immediate victory. Satan was saying, well, why, why don't you just jump down from here? Why, why don't you turn this into that? Why don't you do this for you? And you can have everything that you need satisfied, and you can achieve victory, Jesus. Boom. Self-sufficiency was the core of the temptation. The second lesson. Good motives are no assurance that you will make the right decisions. I know this from my own personal life. I've, I've got, sometimes I have the best motives and the greatest heart. Sometimes they are the most stupid decisions in the world. Because it kind of taps back into number one. I'm, I'm self-sufficient, or I, I kind of want to be a glory hog, you know, really underneath all my good decisions and uh, good assumptions. You know, it's, it's kind of all about me. Moses here is even commended for, for having the right heart, but it's interesting to see that these right motives can lead you down the wrong path. It's remarkable how quickly and easily one can move from the right intentions, your right intentions, to doing things in the wrong way. Godly people who understand this are inclined to not trust themselves or to be overconfident in their decision-making ability. Look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not judge, even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before time, before the Lord comes, who will bring up will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation before God. Even your best intentions can lead you down the wrong path. Third one. And I would love for us to really embrace this. Some of the best lessons come from the worst moments. These two seasons in Moses' life will mark him forever. It took him two-thirds of his life to learn these lessons. And then even in the last third of his life, he's still working it out. He entered into God's, Moses entered into God's seminary, a training ground of pain and failure. Yet even in his failure and the requirement that he had to flee 
those things will prove to be useful in what God was forming in his heart. And this is also the perspective of Paul when it came to his past and Paul's circumstances. 1 Timothy 1, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I am the worst of all these sinners, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I, I was the biggest screw-up, is what Paul is saying. I was, I was the foremost of all sinners. Foremost. I take it all. You think you can win? Bring it on. I'm the greatest screw-up here. I had the worst moments. I persecuted Christ. I persecuted his church. I was bringing men, women, and children out to have them brought to court and even killed. I was doing that. I was persecuting. I was a vehement offender of the gospel. But yet God, who is rich in mercy, Christ, Jesus Christ is the foremost in giving mercy, did something amazing. He, he displayed it in me. I, I became this canvas of God's mercy and God's grace. And listen to 2 Corinthians 1. For what we do not uh, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we received when we were in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I'm sure that you can look back on some of your life history and see, look at some of the worst moments in your life. And some of you don't even want to look at those anymore. Oh, those are yesteryear. I'm new in Christ. But you know what? In my, even my counseling life, my counselor said, you know what, Paul? Those are no longer points of residence. Those are points of reference. You no longer live that. That's not, that's right. You can look back at that and say, that is no longer who I am. This is who I am. Look at where God has brought me through those worst, stupid, crazy moments in my life where I was running from God, I was destroying everybody in my path, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, any kind of way, I was destroying them and myself. And that's a point of reference. But look at what God has done with me now. Look at me. Some of the darkest days produced the greatest insight into God's mercy, God's love, and where he is going to propel you into the future. Therefore, we must be careful, must be careful when our motives are pure to not be too overly confident. And we must be careful that we are not, that when we are experiencing difficulties in our lives, that we assume that there is no point whatsoever to this suffering. Brokenness precedes usefulness. We see that so clearly in Moses' life, but we also see it in Paul and Peter, and yes, 
even Jesus. The gospel itself is rooted there. It's no longer me who lives. I'm dead. But Christ who is in me. It takes a dying to oneself. And John 12, 24 says again, truly, truly. When Jesus does the truly, truly, or if you're old King James and does the verily, verily, truly, truly, it's emphatic. It's like, a, hey, listen, listen. You do it with your kids. Listen, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So in a strange way this morning, I, I pray that you die. Truly. Because many of us have been doing the Christian life. Let me do this. Many of us have been doing the Christian life. We show up. We might even give a little bit. We might have some good works to offer. We might be really nice, encouraging people. We've been doing the Christian life, but the reality is that we have not died. And God is saying, will you be broken? Will you die? So that I can now work in you and bring about much fruit. If in your, even in your death, that's where life is found for the first time. Will you die this morning?